Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Visual, interactive, meaningful, productive. Four values underpinning AssetMap, a financial planning platform loved by advisors and their clients. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. I'm really excited today to have someone that I've been listening to a lot and you know it feels like I really know you, Brendan. It's Brendan Fraser from the Human Side of Money. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, please check out his podcast. We'll talk about it on today's show. We'll talk a little bit about how he got into the industry, what's broken, you know, how and how he's making a change across the globe. Brendan, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited for what you're doing and, and happy to be here and, and get a chance to spread the message about the human side of money, like you said, around the globe. And and honestly, it's one of the, the coolest parts about this experience has been just getting to see how there's a lot of, there may be differences as far as like, you know, well, first of all, the name of money worldwide, right? Like the, the currencies are different. Maybe some of the technical skills are different, but people are people. Whether you're in the US, you're in the UK, you're in Australia, South Africa, like people are people and you're dealing with an emotionally charged topic of money. And so that concept, that, that seems to translate well around the globe. Absolutely. I was listening to Kim Potgitter yesterday and she's quite forward thinking in terms of your money and your relationship. And she was saying that the first history or your first memory of money comes in at the, about the age of seven. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And oftentimes we don't even you know, realize that. Yeah. I, we had somebody on the show that, that pointed that out to me as well, which you know, blew my mind. And as a parent of two young boys, just thought to myself, wow, no pressure. You know, like there'll probably be some moment when we're sitting there like at dinner or, you know, interacting where I say something or do something that'll forever impact the relationship that they have with money. Uh, I've heard the term, one term called uh, financial flashpoint. So it's a point in your life where you don't even really realize it, but it's some, it's a point in your life that forever shapes the way that you think, feel, and behave around money. And, and they mostly happen in early on in your childhood. I mean, no pressure to all you parents out there. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Hey, if we feel that pressure, if you're a parent and a financial planner and yeah. you're worrying about these things, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as yeah. if worrying about clients is not enough, hey? That, that's right. So you started this podcast a year and a half ago, right? Um, and you're getting all the big names across the globe. Like what started this process and you know, how did you take that first step? 
Yeah. So I think the best way to explain it is to go back and talk about a meeting that I was in about four years ago, maybe five years ago now. So I used to consult with financial advisors. And so the cool thing was I got to consult with thousands of advisors, which means you get to see a lot of the best of the best. You get to see some of the not so great things uh, that, that we all know exist that's out there. Uh, but I also got to sit in on a lot of client meetings. So I got to be a part of like seeing how these advisors were working with their clients. And, we're, and I'm, just, I'm not going to go into the details because it doesn't make for great audio, but... It was one meeting where this advisor had been working with these clients for it was at least 10 years. And so ever since they started working together, the whole goal was to get this couple to the point where their husband could retire so they could you know do the things that everybody says they want to do when they retire. So this meeting was because that he, he was finally to a point where he was going to be able to retire. Right? So they were coming in. We put together this income plan for him to show him how he could live the rest of his life off of the money that he had saved and he could retire, didn't have to work anymore. And so he comes in and he sits down. He's across the, the advisor and I are on one side. He and his wife are on the other. And we put up on the screen the, the financial planning software, the projection that shows, hey, here's if you do these things, you can retire. You're going to live off of your investments that you've been saving up for. This is the moment you've been waiting for your whole life, right? So if we look up there, it was, I think it was like a 93 three percent probability of success that he could never outlive his money and live and retire and, and be happy and so in that moment i remember thinking like as i looked across the table that should be a couple that's filled with joy or a relief or a happiness or you know this is the moment they've been planning for and they on the screen they saw a successful picture they'd always envisioned right so here we are i look across the table and it wasn't joy that was painted on his face it was it was an image of fear but it just just straight fear and it was obvious it was palpable so the advisor asked you know kind of like hey i you know you don't seem to be you seem a little bit hesitant is there something that's not really clicking here and he said he's like i get i get this i get the that i can do it but i can't stomach my money being invested in the market when it's the money that i have to live off of to fund my lifestyle and so the advisor said, okay, well, let's look at what it would look like if we didn't invest your money, right? If you wanted to feel safe, feel more comfortable, what would that look like? So he changes the allocation, reruns the scenario, puts it up on the screen, and all of a sudden, the probability of success drops down to the mid-70s, right? So that if there was ever a moment where facts and numbers and visuals should prevail, where you would think that you could make it the best decision based off of numbers alone, that would be it, right? Like... If you want to retire, this option, option one gives you a 93% probability of success. Option two gives you 75. Clearly, there's a best option, right? Well, he didn't He didn't go with that option. He, he said, I can't stomach it. I can't do it. I get that the numbers say that. And it was this clear moment of, you know, logic's no match for emotion. And so I remember thinking in that moment, it didn't matter what he did, that advisor did from a technical standpoint from building the plan the portfolio none of that was going to give the client the life that he'd wanted it, what that advisor needed was a completely different skill set to be able to guide the client through what he was thinking and feeling to in order to make the best decision and so that was an eye-opening moment for me and then so i started asking after that i started asking these advisors when i would meet with them you know like what how much of your time do you feel like is spent um learning how to 
deal with the human side of things, right? Like there's psychology and behavior and emotions because I would hear all the time, you know, Brendan, sometimes I feel like I'm more of a psychologist than I am a financial planner. Or sometimes I wish I had a degree in psychology instead of a degree in finance or economics. So I just kind of started asking her, how, like, what are you doing or what do you do to get better at that human side, essentially? And everybody would just say like, well, I mean, I know it's important, but we don't really get any training. We don't really have any resources to get better at it. So it's this moment of like, okay, hang on, wait a minute. There, we, everybody, most people admit that it's necessary or admit that it's important, that it's crucial, that it helps in the relationship, but nobody knows where to go to get the resources to, to do it. So I, so that's kind of where the idea was born was a out of a need and then B out of my weird, oddly strange passion for, uh, human behavior and psychology. I've always kind of enjoyed it anyways. And so, uh, I heard, uh, then to, to wrap this up here, I, I was having this thought already and then I'm out walking my dog one day and I hear a podcast where this guy says, if all we needed was more information, we'd be billionaires with six packs. You may have heard me say that before because I say it all the time. And I, I just remember that sinking in like he's right. We don't need more information. We don't need the best technical knowledge. We need somebody to change behavior. So that's kind of where this the where Wired Planning in the podcast was born was there's a gap here that exists where there's information and knowledge out there. There's people out there that know that are experts on psychology and behavior and behavioral finance, but we need to translate those concepts into practical application for financial advisors so they can turn around and use it with their clients. And so the podcast was just simply meant to be a bridge between those experts and then the financial advice community. Um, so we, we have these guests on that are great at what they do, that are great at the, those dimensions of behavior, psychology, communication, emotion, and basically just have them on and talk to us about what we need to know as advisors to better work with our clients to get better outcomes to to, to grow our practice yeah and what i love about the human side of money is that you make it so practical you know there's worksheets that you can download and you can literally the next day say okay i'm going to implement this with my clients the best part is also that you know you are doing this day to day as well so you've got a, a group of clients that you service as well how's your relationship with those clients changed since you started doing this podcast Oh, that's well, that's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that before. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably changed. I've always believed in the importance of like mapping your money to meaning and using money to fund the life that you want to live and being able to help somebody identify not just the fact that they want to retire, but like what does that look like vividly and clearly. Um, but I, I think what it's really done is probably just helped me take it to a whole new level as far as like maybe I thought that I, I had done an effective job at like helping somebody really clarify their vision. Maybe I thought that I that I was doing a good job listening, right? Maybe I thought that um, you know that I was help, that I was getting somebody to where they wanted to go. But all it's done is open my eyes to the fact that there's a lot more that I don't know. Um, so as far as like, I think the main thing I've done is probably just learn how to change my process in a way that's more human centered and less uh, what the industry or the classic way of doing things, right? It's, it's less about the product. It's less about just churning people through to get numbers. It's less about uh, putting together a great financial plan and expecting the client to follow through on it. And it's more about thinking through the human element at every step. For example, like, okay, 
and I know a lot of us struggle with this. This is one of the common things I hear and get questions about is data gathering, right? Gathering client documents, gathering their data. It always takes longer than expected. You're just always a follow-up process. But instead of like thinking through it from the lens of like, man, well, you know, if they're serious about this, they're going to get it to me. Like, taking a step back and going, okay, what is it that they're thinking and feeling in that moment? that may be preventing them from getting us what we need. And then where are our systems and processes, where are they layered with friction that we don't even notice? Right. So like just looking at it from more of a human centered lens and saying, these are real people that we probably have friction in our process. If they're not getting it to us, like the way that they're supposed to, there's ways to make it better. So it's more of it just an, like, you know, the phrase or the, the whole idea of the more, you know, the more you don't know, that's kind of what it's done for me. It's just kind of show me like, as much as I thought that I knew, there's a lot that I really don't know. Yeah. That conscious incompetence saying, Oh, we thought we were doing this, this really well, but actually there's a better way. And our, our clients become the guinea pigs. Hey, of the, these, these different ways. Yeah. I was once at a, at a presentation for a coaching course and the presenter was pitching this course saying, turn to the guy next to you and and greet him and then tell him how much you earn, right? And everyone pushed back. And now we can relate that to our clients saying, you know, there's these people coming into a first meeting and actually having to open up their whole lives without us building that trust and creating a comfort, safe space for them. Yep. What are the practical steps that you take to make it easier, you know, like in those first couple of meetings just to ease people and kind of get them say, hey, Okay, let's start this process and I feel comfortable moving forward. Yeah, that's a really great question because I, and this is something where whenever I first started out, I wrote about it uh, in one of the articles. But like, I think this is an area where we can also look to other fields to think through, like, hey, how do we truly get somebody to open up and tell us some of the things that they don't often tell? really most other people in their lives, right? And I think it's important to also recognize that. Like we're asking people to talk to us about things that they just don't talk to many other people about. And, and much, I mean, they probably don't even talk to their best friends about when they've had two or three bottles of wine, in fact. So the question is, yeah, what can we, how can we facilitate that? Now, I think there's something to be said about when somebody comes in, they, they, they're, they're more woo- willing to talk about it, the more open to talk about it, because they know that in order to get the result that they want, they have to open up a little bit. Right. But, but there's still an art to being able to get somebody from just regurgitating or throwing out their financial data to actually talking about something that's truly emotional to them. And and not to mention the fact that some people can come in and think, Hey, you know, you're a financial advisor, not a therapist, right? There's always this fear of like, am I, are they going to wonder why I'm trying to ask about what they, what they want their, what their family values are, for example. Right. So, uh, there's one thing that I think right out of the gate, it's important to think through what is it that goes through somebody's mind when they come into that first meeting or a discovery meeting where you're trying to uncover as much valuable information as you can from somebody and they come in that one in two things, their brain needs to know two things. Can I, can I trust this person? And do I like this person? That's actually one. Do I like and trust them? And the number two is they want certainty, the certainty and the peace of mind to know that you're the person that's fully equipped and able to solve their problems. They don't care about your, as Carl Richard said, they don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems and they want the certainty when they walk out and the clarity to know that you're the best person to do that. 
So there's a study done, uh, this was several years ago, where they had two groups of people. And there are thousands of, of conversations had in two separate groups. And on one hand, there was a, a group where they were given 15 minutes, two people that didn't know each other, sat across from a table, given 15 minutes. And that group, first group was instructed to ask nine questions in a 15-minute period. Group number two had the same 15 minutes, but they could ask no more than four questions over a 15-minute period. So group one, nine questions in 15 minutes. Group two, four questions in 15 minutes. So after thousands of those conversations, the researchers go back, they do their research, they, do their, they look through their studies, and they ask the participants what the result, like what they felt, what they learned. And their findings were twofold. One, that the people that asked nine questions were both more liked and trusted and that they felt more heard and understood. And so if your job in that first meeting is to get somebody to like and trust you and to create the certainty that they want to know that you can do what they want done, uh, and they want, to, they want to make sure that you have the information that you need to do it, then questions are a superpower to accomplishing both of those things. Now, that being said... In one of our episodes, we had a guest on, Samantha Lama. She's a behavioral researcher at Morningstar. And she said that when she went into a, a meet with an advisor for the first time, she and she's in the industry, she goes in, she sits down, the advisor asks her within two minutes, so what are your goals? And she... and. and yeah, it kind of makes sense, but just hearing her say it was interesting how she said that it kind of, she felt taken aback as if like, you know, I, I just met you. How am I why am I talking about these goals? So I say that to say, you've got to earn your right to get the information that you want. You have to earn your right to ask the more vulnerable questions. So as a follow-up to the, that study, what there's another study done about questions where they put two people together that didn't know each other. And they've had in one of the groups, they had them ask a structured, ordered set of questions where they escalated in, in intensity and vulnerability. And those, those, the people that had that conversation reported being more well liked and were gaining more valuable information than those that just randomly asked questions as they came about. So I say that to say this questions are the superpower to getting people to open up to get them talking, but you can't just ask the, you can't just go right out of the gate, guns blazing, saying, Hey, tell me about your most, your mo the worst financial decision you've ever made. You have to earn your right to get there by ordering and structuring your questions in a way that, that warm them up. So like on the, on a, on the podcast, for example, it's very intentional. The beginning of every episode is asking somebody, asking the guest to tell us about their journey from where they from where they were to where they are today, how they got to this intersection of behavior and finance or psychology and money, right? And that's very intentional because you're asking somebody two th something that does two things. It's a story that they know and they're comfortable telling, so it gets them in a in a state of like revealing and talking, so they get comfortable talking. And then it's a positive emotion and a positive experience. So you're creating this positive flow right out of the gate that sets the table, lays the foundation for the rest of the conversation. So if you can do that, that's going to eventually yield more information as you go. And then one last thing I would say that's probably the, I'm going to say maybe the most important. It's just this, the concept that the most powerful question you can ask any a client, a friend, a colleague, uh, your spouse is a follow-up question. Not basically because, because if you think about it, 
when somebody's talking to you, they're always wondering, like, do they care? Are they listening? Should I keep going? And what follow-up questions do is they immediately signal to the other person that you are interested, that you do care, and that you want to know more. So just simply asking follow-up questions to clarify what somebody said is going to open the floodgates of information, maybe more so than anything else that you can do. Yeah, and I'd couple that with you know being present because you can't fo- ask a really good follow-up question if your mind is wandering or you're not actively engaged. And like you said, it has to be human-centered. It's human-centered yeah. advice. Yeah. A big pushback we always get around the kind of, you know, coaching human side of money approach is that, oh, this will take way longer and my clients don't care about these. They just want a product solution. What is your response to that? I'd love to hear it from the man that does this. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. So I think it's twofold. So one, I asked George Kinder the same question. So for those of you that I mean, I guess most people probably know George Kinder. If you don't know George, know George Kinder, he's the father of life planning. And so that's what I wanted to ask him, right? It was like, because he's been doing this for 30 years. So I have my thoughts. I'm happy to share them. And I asked him the same thing. I thought, you know, that one of the things, one of the hesitations I've heard around this idea of with life planning anyways, they're getting deep and understanding somebody and, and their values and their, their emotions is that it, it, it's not scalable. Like how could I, like, it's not scalable. How do I do this? It, it, because it takes more time. Uh, and basically what he said was like, if when you have a process of how to do it, it may take a little bit more time, but it's not going to take that much more time. It's just about having a process and a system and being used to it and getting comfortable with it. But ultimately, let's say, because I think it does take more time, right? Like selling a product is always going to take less time than truly transforming somebody's life. I think you really have to ask yourself, what is it that you do for your clients? And if you want to just sell a product, that's that's fine. Um, you're, you're probably not the type of person that's going to get it's going to want to know uh, what somebody's clear, vivid vision is for the life that they want to live, what their values are and, and what their emotions are, what their beliefs are. Because uh, it does, quite frankly, it does take longer. And I think it should take longer. But here's the thing. You, have to, you also have to ask yourself, what are you in this for? Right? Are you in this, like if, if you're thinking about you want to build a practice where you can transform lives and you get to work with clients and retain clients for a long period of time. The client that there's a, there's a Harvard business review study that says emotionally connected clients are six times more likely to consolidate assets. Emotionally connected clients refer more. They follow through on your advice more and they consolidate assets more often. So is it more work? Yes. I, I don't think that I, I can't figure out a way around that. Does it take more time? Certainly. But does it yield results both in the client's lives and in your business in a way that just selling a product never can? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it might take longer, but the effect of that work that you're putting in scales rapidly. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say it scales. It may not feel rapid though. Right. Like if you're thinking about, and a lot of it's intangible too, right? Like how are you, it's hard to, it's hard to tie the fact that you spent more time with somebody to the fact that you got a referral from their friend, or it's hard to tie the fact that you, you've spent more time uncovering somebody's vision to the fact that they're better at following through on your advice than the person that, that doesn't have that same, that same vision. Right. So that's the, and that's the challenge with this whole, this, the human side of money and the human side of vices, it, a lot of it's not quantifiable. It's, it's it's an intangible benefit that those of us that have experienced it know, 
but it's really hard to quantify it for an industry that's very numbers oriented. Yeah, and that shift's happening rapidly. You know, people saying, oh, this feels like a much better approach and I feel more comfortable and I can build a lifestyle business. And before the call, you mentioned a couple of things that you want to accomplish and, you know, still have a balance in life. When you started out building your practice, like how did you decide on how much time you're going to be allocating on working with clients versus doing other things like your podcast and creating content? Yeah, I I wish that I had just like the prototype, great, you know, write a book about this answer to that. Uh, but I don't think that I do. And and the other funny thing that I question myself on all the time is I I started both of them right as we were about to have our first child, and now we have two kids, uh, and so it's like two businesses with two kids under three, uh, and so it's just this. <laughs> it's it's a, it's it's fun, but you know it's a challenge at the same time. Um, and of course, as most people know, when you're when you're launching your business, right, like. A lot of you, when you think about how to allocate your time, a lot of it's just allocating towards prospecting, towards talking to people, meeting people, spreading the message, because that's what you have a lot of time to do at that point. Um, so I've had to just, I've had to learn the importance of, of like being super, it's nothing, this isn't sexy advice by any means. There's nothing like, you know, there's no hack in here. It's just truly like looking at my, my week and my day every single day and thinking like where I, these are the things that I need to get done that I have to get done. What can I eliminate that keeps me from that? Um, and then just prioritizing it and getting it done. I mean, and, 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 but at the same time, like wanting to be, you know, a great dad and a great spouse and present at home. And I don't have a perfect solution, nor by any means do I do it perfectly. Uh, it's really, I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is read the book Essentialism, which basically, which helps you think through like how to prioritize your life. Um, and then just basically going into every day thinking, you know, what are my, what are the things, what are the most, what's the highest and best use of my time? Um, and it's, it's meant that I've been able to do less, you know, I used to just, I love to sit around watching sports and reading about sports. And, you know, I used to every night like, would go to like, go get coffee with anybody and everybody that wanted to get coffee. And I'm having to truly start thinking about like, Hey, you know, I've got to, I've got to look at my time a lot more intentionally than I ever did before. And I think, yeah, I mean, kids are a big piece of that, but yes, I, that there's no, <laughs> I'm not sure that I have the magic bullet or the, you know, the, the bulletproof formula there, but it, it, I think the main thing I try to stress to people all the time too, cause I work with a lot of parents that run businesses. Right. And so we always have these conversations around how do we best allocate our time? If our focus is on being the best dad, the best parent, you know, the, the best business owner around are our activities lining up to that? Do our, is our, the way we're allocating our time, does it indicate that? And so I guess I'll say this kind of as a final thought that I've stolen from somebody else. I think so important and so good is if you truly want to see somebody where somebody's actions and intentions lie, all you have to do is open up their calendar and their checkbook right, and see where they're spending their time and spending their money. And that'll tell you what you're at, what your intentions truly are. So if you think that it's really important to you to be a great dad, a great parent, and a great business owner, go look and see based on your calendar where you're spending your time is, is that where your energy is flowing? Uh, it can be a humbling realization too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but that was, that's a good piece of advice that I got a while back too. That's been helpful. That's so true. And, and what strikes me is the part that, you know, oftentimes we look at a client spending and we'll see where their money is going and they can't really hide, but I've never asked a client to, Hey, print out your calendar and show us 
where you've spent your time and okay, how does that align to your values? Uh, and that might be a really worthwhile discussion to have with a client to say, actually, if I'm going to be your accountability coach and partly talk about, you know, getting you to live the best life that you want to live, let's talk about how you spend your time and, you know, how you have energy to, to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a running a thought that I've had while running before, right? It's like, I feel like if you could, if there must, maybe there's a way, I don't know this for sure. Like we can see how people spend their money, right? We know that part, but what if we also like as a part of the data gathering process, got an inventory of how they spent their time, right? Or even helped them on how to spend their time. Cause I mean, that's, if you're helping them live the best life they want to live, money is one way to, one way to accomplish that. But like, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're not spending your time in alignment with your values, it doesn't matter. So anyways, I don't know. I haven't done that. I don't, and there may be somebody that does. I'm sure there probably is actually. Uh, but I, I'm with you. I think that would be a fascinating way, a thing to do. Like a time resource audit. Yeah. 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 And I want to echo that book, uh, Essentialism. I think Maura Summers also spoke about it on your, on your call saying she reads it annually and it just helps her refocus. And if you don't know who Moira Summers is, uh, check out Advice That Sticks. It's probably one of yeah. the top financial planning books. And I'm guessing you're also a super avid reader because one of your questions in your show is always like trying to find out what clients are reading or what your guests are reading. What's on your stack? Uh, I'm assuming it's on a Kindle or on a kind of uh, shelf at the moment. Like what are you yeah. consuming at the moment? Man, uh, so I'm one of those weird people and this is not, I'm kind of like a, I'm a dying breed where like, if I get, a, if I'm going to read a book, I'm reading it in hand, like the Kindle. I, first of all, I know I should use a Kindle. Just, I can't do it. And part of the reason is because I want a library in my house one day. Another part of the reason is because like something about holding it in my hand, I comprehend it better. Um, but so I, I, I just finished essentialism, which for those of you, so for the longest time I thought in my mind, like I essentialism, I get the concept, right? Do the things you're supposed to do. Don't do the things you're not. seems pretty simple. So for the longest time I didn't read it. Cause I kind of figured like, Oh, I get it. Well, uh, it, it, if you've ever thought that, just read it. You'll be glad that you did. Um, I just, uh, how to change by Katie Milkman. So she's a, um, professor at, Penn, the University of Penn, she just wrote the book, How to Change. And being interested in, fascinated by human behavior and changing behavior, that one obviously went to the top of the list. Um, there's a book called Flip the Script by Oren Claff. So it's about how to communicate, how to basically wire somebody's brain so that it's ready to receive the message that you're going to give and specific ways to do that, which I, which is really interesting. Um, and then a book called, it's actually, I've got it right over here. So I'm looking at it. It's called Sprint, Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. So essentially it's, well, that pretty much sums it up, but it's the guy, it's from a group at Google who would implement the sprint process where they take five day periods and go from nothing to prototype and know if it was going to be effective or not. So just from, uh, you know, a, a, we're working on some, um, courses and some coaching, some coaching and some online courses at wired planning. And so I'm kind of using that as a way to think through how to best design these for what advisors want and what they'll use. Wow. And I, I just talking about the courses and the content and what you're talking about reminds me of that change in the CFP board's allocation to the psychology of money. I think they, they named it. And yeah, the it psychology like, of financial know, planning. Yeah. The psychology of financial planning. 
Um, and it feels like you're kind of 100% aligned with this wave of people saying, hey, I need to be listening to the Brad and the Ted Clances of the world and starting incorporating psychology. So how far do we push the human side of money into psychology and maybe even financial therapy? Is there a limit in your mind? And, and what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, and I'm, I'm never afraid to say I don't know if I really don't know the answer to that question. I think that's kind of what I'm experimenting with as well or trying to figure out as well is like where how far do we go i mean here's what i think we know for sure is the the this the industry that we're in if you go back technology's always been evolving and adapting in a way that's forced us to change and and, and shift our value proposition right so you could at once we may have been stockbrokers because nobody had access to the stock markets well technology gave them access technology's given them information technology's given them uh, a robo advisor who can who can build a portfolio and manage it at a lower cost with more reliability and and, and does it a little bit faster right so I'm not saying that that I'm not demeaning the value of investment advice. But what I am saying is that if you look out there, historically, technology has always shifted our value. And what we've what we've tried to do is continue to run away from it by the pursuit of more technical knowledge, right? So the most recent example is, okay, robo-advisors come out, investment management starting to become more commoditized. We realize that nobody can really beat the market and it's just low-cost index funds are oftentimes the most the most cost efficient and return efficient way to invest money. So what's our next pivot? Well, we're going to go into comprehensive wealth management and financial planning, right? So if we can't do investments, let's at least do financial planning and look at somebody's life as a whole and give them the plan. Well, now you've got technology coming along that's doing financial planning and and it's free and available to the masses. So Bank of America, big bank here, in its first six months in existence with its free financial planning software had 3 million users, right? So that's 6 million for the year. It's only going to keep growing. So now financial planning is available to the masses. So I, I say that to say not that I don't think that, well, shoot, we could all be wrong, uh, but I don't think that technology is going to replace the value of technical knowledge completely. What I do think is that it's shifting the value more so to the human side of advice and the human side of money than I think than it is right now. So it's certainly going to keep shifting that way, right? So if a computer can do what you do at a lower cost, at a faster speed and more reliably, those things that you do that it can do better, it's time to kind of start thinking about, all right, should I let the computer do that? For lack of a better term, technology, the computer do that. And then what does that mean I should do? Well, the next natural step and transition is to take the, to do what a, the computer can't do. And that what a computer can't do is sit down and talk through somebody with their about their values and emotions around money. They can't replicate that. Yeah, that marginal value that you're adding, you know, are you adding value in the right area of that someone's life? And is it worth spending the time and energy and resources in crafting those skills? And it feels like you're almost looking 10 or 20 years down the road saying, hey, what are the skills that we would need then? And let's start working on it today. And Here's, here's the resources that you need to start doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would argue that there's skills that you need now. I just think they're going to become more critical in the future, right? So if you're if you're already if you're ahead of the game doing it now, you're you're a, you're already separating yourself and adapting for the future where those where those skills are are much more critical than they are now. Yeah. So the product implementation component, specifically uh-huh. in South Africa, is often laid with the product, which is commission based. Yeah. So, yep. you know, someone would work for another insurance business, distributing product. 
And then, you know, they would add on financial planning and maybe a little bit of coaching to that. Or do we have to approach it through the component saying, hey, we require independent advice and kind of that fiduciary first component? Or is there is there a role for coaching and the human side of money in the product distribution side of the world? Yeah, I think there, there's still a role. Uh, and I say that's because I know that there's... There's people, there's a mo- models here in the U.S. that are similar where it's product focused, product based, product forward with like you know, the advice or the plan kind of sprinkled in afterwards. But I still think at the end of the day, if you're selling a product even. So let's not talk about what the best way is to go about it to truly transform somebody's finances in their life. But is it possible to do it through the product route? I, I think the answer is, or I mean, I know the answer is yes, because you're still working with an emotional human on their emotionally charged topic of money. And the, even when you're selling a product, you still have to connect with somebody. You still have to be able to build trust, build credibility, create some certainty like we were talking about earlier. Uh, so it's still important. It's still relevant. And we could even look at it through this lens too is, like a lot of what we talk about with advisors all the time is not just like the plan itself, but the implementation and the follow through. So that applies to the product side too, is but just better understanding how to get somebody to, to apply or to buy in to purchase the product, not just know that they need it, but to actually purchase it. Now, the, again, the conversation around is, let me say this. I think there's a way that's more effective and I, and I think it's, I don't think it's the product route, but I know that that sometimes you can't help what you're doing. If you're there to sell products, you're selling a product. Um, but if you're truly in the business of uncovering clients, values and emotions around money, you want to guide them through the process and change their behavior for the better, help them live the life that they want to live. There's a better, the product route's probably not the way to do that, but is there still a human behavioral psychological side that's applicable where you can help people? Certainly. Yeah, and that's a great point because oftentimes we want to postpone working on these things until we get another piece right in the business saying, I have to do this first before I can start working on this. And what you're saying is, hey, actually, you need to you need to be using this if you want to make a dis- difference in people's lives and actually get them to take action. Yeah. And a lot of your episodes are around, you know, someone moving from that, hey, I'm not ready. I haven't been thinking about action, that kind of pre-contemplative stage to actually moving closer to, you know, taking action in your kind of framework of how you approach things. Like how do you guide your clients through getting to a point where they're ready to take action? Yeah. So let me first give a shout out to Megan Lertz. Uh, do you know Megan? Have you read her work? Big fan. Okay. Yeah. So I think she's do. I'm on record as saying that I think she's putting out some of the absolute best content in the industry right now on just the human side of money is what I, I guess what I'm familiar with calling it, but just how to get people to change, how to deal with human beings. So she writes for uh, kids.com nerds. I view, uh, and every, and every week I look and there's a new article out and I'm looking at it going, how does she do this? This is unreal. And if you're, if you're interested in hearing from her, we had her on the show, episode 10, talking about how to bridge the gap between your current and future self. Uh, so, but I, I really like that question because that's one that we think through, I think through with it a lot with advisors is, 
where do you, how can you implement this in your process, in your practice, in your process to get people to move and change behavior? So the first thing you have to do is start with what we call the friction and fuel assessment. So start thinking through where in your process, where in your practice you experience the most friction, or maybe another way to think of it is this is it, it, what, if you could remove one part of your process at any point in your, at any point working with clients, if you could remove one part and it would make the rest of it infinitely easier, what would it be? So the three areas where we hear that most often are uh, data gathering or no, sorry, let me back up. Going from prospect to client. Then once they you get them to sign, once they're a client, going from client to data gathering, getting them to actually send you all of their documents, which is not only a hard task, but also uh, an emotional one because they're opening up their financial life for you. And then after that is the actual implementation of the advice that you give. Right? And so there, the, there's a number of things you can do, like you know, tactically small things you can do it, it, for each of those. What I would say is this, if we're looking for just one thing you can do that makes the biggest difference to spur and ignite behavior change at any point, at all three points in the process, it's getting somebody to be clear and vivid and in touch with their why, their values, and their visions and understanding why they're doing it and what you do for them. So for example, and I use this example a lot. So if you've heard it before, I apologize, but I think it's it's relevant. It's important. So if you want somebody to go from, you have somebody in your office, they're a, they're a prospect, we'll call it. You want You know they'd be a good client. You want them to be a client. The best way to get them from potential client to client is to show them the fact that you can get them from where they are to this clear vision of where they want to be. You can transport them. You transform them into that result that they want, right? So uh, that doesn't mean that nobody gets excited about, hey, uh, you know, uh, you, Brendan's going to be the guy that gets me to retirement. Like That doesn't fire anybody up. But what will fire somebody up is if they think to themselves, uh, if you get, if you know, if you help them get to the point where they know it's not just retirement, it's the fact that I get to go two times a year to Disney World with my two kids and four grandkids, where we're going to stay at the Swan and Dolphin and spend this time together going to these parks. A very vivid, real description. That's just one example, and it's one that I give a lot because it's I've seen it in practice so many times. Uh, but that, but that, but just uncovering the fact that that's their vision, that's what they really want, which is hard to do, by the way. And then also acknowledging through that that what they really want isn't to retire; they want to spend more time with their family and the people they love the most. Don't show them how to go from. Uh, don't show them the path to where they are to retirement. Show them the path from where they are to this exact life that they want to live that they just described to you that they just told you about. All right, and then once you do that. They and they have the certainty that you're the person to give them that result because you've had the conversation with them that sounds nothing like the, any the conversation they've had of anybody else. Then now you've got the prospect to client. All of a sudden, when they're a client and you need to gather all their documents and all their data, which is a cumbersome task, they're they've got the back when I said the fuel friction and fuel thing, this is the fuel part. So give them the fuel to become a client. And then once they know what they're working towards, they've got the fuel to gather the documents. They, they're more motivated to do it. And it's not just about motivation. This isn't a foolproof solution, but it certainly ignites behavior change in a way very few other things can. 
And then once they get the documents, because they've got this vision of why they're doing it, the actual implementation of the advice, maybe it's, hey, you're going to get there in five years, but to do that, you've got to start putting away $1,000 a month to get there. All of a sudden, putting away $1,000 a month isn't as painful if you know the vivid reason why you're doing it. In fact, there's Morningstar did a study that showed that the number one predictor determinant of savings behavior isn't income, it's not age, it's not gender, it's not education. It's truly their vivid, their clarity and vividness around their future self. So there's without trying, without getting into too many things, I wanted to give one thing you can do that impacts the most friction heavy areas of the process. And that's, and that's just one thing. Again, it doesn't just automatically make everything a seamless move from one to one end to the next, but it's something that makes a big difference in every phase. It feels like you're engaging all senses, you know, when they're creating this picture of what it is that they're going to be achieving. And, and someone once said about, you know, reflecting back on that once you've achieved it, like what changes for you and how do you feel and, now I can just imagine how great that conversation must be when someone realizes, ah, it's not the retirement, you know, it's spending time with my grandkids, you know, experiencing Disney World and kind of having these great experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny to think about this. Like you would think that most of the people would know that you think that they would make that connection, but the, the reality is, is they just haven't really taken the time or given themselves the space to understand that that's really what it's about, which is why there's value in you having the conversation to open their eyes to the fact that to make that connection. And again, like I said a second ago, I can assure you from having worked with all these advisors, at least in the States anyway, I guess I, I, maybe it's different elsewhere, but I can assure you that if you're having that conversation, you're going to sound a lot different than 99% of the other advisors out there if you're in a competitive situation. Yeah. Yeah. What strikes me is that, you know, you mentioned that clients are going from, from prospects and then client, and then you start working with them. Where in South Africa, it's often, you know, if you don't take up this advice and you don't implement it, you don't become a client. So does it work different? Do someone actually commit saying, okay, now I'm going to work with you. And then it's a matter of, do we start this process? Um, and, and opposed to when, whereas here it's, hey, you have to implement the advice. Otherwise you don't become a client. So, I mean, we have both models too. I guess I keep, yeah. I keep speaking to what I've come to believe and, and philosophically think is the best way to do it, right? But, but that doesn't mean that everybody does it that way. And I get that. So to your point, but I think no matter how you structure it, like you still have to convince a person to become a client, whether it's through implementation or just the fact that you can give them the advice that they need. So in, in my example of prospect, to data gathering, to uh, implementation. Yeah, I mean, you could probably, you, it, the concept still applies. Maybe you just break down the data gathering wall and it's, you're going, okay, I want this prospect to become, uh, to implement the product that I have, that, that I want to use. But to do that, like you're still battling going from prospect, earning somebody's trust, right? That's just ultimately yeah, what becoming yeah, a prospect yeah. to a client is. They become a client by implementing. And if, if you give them the fuel for what they're doing it for, they're going to go from prospect to client. And they're going to implement a lot faster than if they just think they're doing it because it's going to give them a better return. Yeah, yeah. And, and it sounds like they're almost committing to that, saying, hey, let's work together. Let's figure this out. And then there might be a financial product or you know, in the future, they might not be. That's exactly right. I mean, at the, if nothing else, at the end of the day, you've 
connected with them, you've created a, a relationship with somebody that's unlike what they've he- seen and heard from most other financial professionals. So that they, if they have more needs later on, if you ever get into a, if you ever transition out and get into a more or less product centric industry or job, you've still got the relationship and the connection with somebody because of the fact that you did these things in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Brendan, where is it that you see this industry going? You know, is it completely removed from product where we change, you know, our roles of what we do, or is there always going to be kind of a link to these or they're going to be different structures? Yeah. I'm just wondering how you see future of financial planning. Uh, yeah. So I, first of all, I love that question. Uh, second of all, whatever I say is guaranteed to be wrong, right? But but if there's anything I know, it's that you know if, if there's anything I've learned from this industry, it's that future forecasts and trying to predict what's going to happen is pretty much you know a, an exercise in, in being wrong. But if, so this is what I I like to think through it like this. And this is what I call the Amazon principle. So, and some people may have heard of this before, but when they asked Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, like, what is he going to, what are they working on 10 years from now? What are they working on in the future? What are they working towards? What are they evolving towards? His answer was, everybody wants to know what we're going to do differently and what we're going to change and what's going to happen that we need to be ready for. He says, I focus on the things that I know that aren't going to change. So what are what are things that aren't going to change? People want low cost and they want things delivered quickly. And he know he's like we know that's not going to change. Are there other ways that we can distribute? Yeah, are the pricing models going to change? Maybe, but if we focus on the things we know that we aren't going to change, the low costs and fast delivery, we're always going to be successful. And I think that's a powerful way to look at the future of this industry and the way that it's evolving as far as how to position yourself is we can sit here and try to predict what technology is going to look like in 10 years. But, you know, if, if speaking of behavioral biases, there's this thing called the planning fallacy where we're terrible planners. We never think things ever happen as fast as we think they're going to. And so in my mind, in 10 or 20 years, it'll be an industry that's just strictly based on giving financial advice without any products. We're doing financial plans and there's a focus on the human side of money. Is that going to happen? Probably not. So let's think through what are the things that don't change what are the what are the the core pillars of, of like of money and people and finance that we can think about that don't change to position for and one thing we know that doesn't change is that information doesn't yield results right if all we needed were, if all we needed was information we'd be billionaires with six packs we wouldn't have failing businesses failing marriages we wouldn't people wouldn't be obese we know how to do these things that's never going to change. Information is never going to give us results because it's not an information problem. It's an execution problem, which means there's always going to be value in helping to change somebody's behavior for the better. And so if you can, if you want to think about how to, where it's going and where, where we want to focus our time, efforts, and energy to be best positioned for the future of financial planning, that's why, I mean, I'm biased, certainly, don't get me wrong, but that's why I'm so passionate about this message of the human side of money is because when I look at it from a, a business standpoint, even and think through like, you know, my business 10 and 20 years from now, I, I think I, again, I could be wrong, but I think that's still going to be valuable in 10 or 20 years. There, and that's still going to be something that people are going to want 10 to 20 years from now as somebody that can sit down, understand their values, their emotions, help them uncover those things and then change their behavior for the better. Yeah, that guy that guides someone through life transitions and just 
you know, being there to support them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I, that could change. I mean, I suppose it could it just seems like if it does, it'll probably be a while. And wide planning is leading that change. Yeah. Well, I, it, it, that's the goal, right? Yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> Brilliant. Brendan, this has been a ton of fun. I'm really looking forward to watching your presentation at next gen, uh, coming up oh, yeah. shortly and continuing just to consume these like world-class thought leaders and the human side of money. I have to ask you, like, how do you approach your guests? Like, do you just shoot them a message and say, Hey, <laughs> I need you to come on or, uh, and have you had many kickbacks? Uh, so essentially the answer to that is yes. What I, this out of the gate, this is just by accident. What I did was I put, so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. If anybody's on Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, uh, follow me on there, come find me on there, say, Hey. Uh, and so what I did was I put out this question to the, uh, FinTwit and then the LinkedIn financial Twitter, no, no, hang on the LinkedIn community. And then the financial Twitter community and just said, Hey, if you could have a, a round table discussion, it's a question I ask on the podcast now, but I asked it before, if you could have a round table discussion of anybody to talk about behavior, psychology and money, who would it be? So I got a long list of all these possible answers and then people were tagged in the, in the um, responses. Right. So then I just went to a couple people and said like, Hey, the, the people want to hear from you. Would you want to come on the show? Um, and that's kind of how it sort of how it started, uh, was just reaching out that way. Um, via Brilliant. sometimes on social media, sometimes on, on email, but then now, um, it's kind of cool. And I mean, you'll see this too, but now it's to the point where like, you, you have people that are reaching out to you that want to come on or you reach out to a guest and they know they're either aware of it or they see that you've had other guests on that they, um, that they're in circles with, that they sort of associate themselves with. So they sort of this shortcut in their mind that it's a, you know, this is a good use of my time. So that being said, I have to thank the guests that I've had on, um, because it's, I mean, without them, it's, there's no show, there's no, there's very little value to be had. And so they've, they've been awesome and they're a big reason for the success that I've had. So I, I try to thank them at every chance I can get. I love that social nudge that you've used just to get them in. Hey, don't disappoint your fans. You have yeah. to be on the show. <laughs> well, this, that was, I wish I could say that that was intentional, that the reality is that I, I it was sorted by accident. Well, it's a extremely valuable resource. Um, so if you haven't listened to the show, you know, please check out The Human Side of Money and subscribe to their newsletter. It definitely is one of the most valuable resources in the industry. So you're not getting that wrong. Brendan, <laughs> you mentioned people can get hold of you on LinkedIn and Twitter. Is there anywhere else they need to have a look at? Yeah, well, if you if you like podcasts, if you're listening to this, you probably do. Uh, check out The Human Side of Money. See what you think. Uh, and then... Um, like you mentioned, we've got the, uh, once a month we send out a newsletter, uh, to advisors. It's basically a roundup of behavior, psychology, and communication with some nuggets about how to apply it to your practice and, uh, get great feedback on that. So you can go to the website, wiredplanning.com. Um, if nothing else, you can go there and kind of check out the mission and what we're doing. And then you can sign up for that newsletter there, uh, or check out the podcast, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I, I tell everybody that I learn the most and get the best ideas for content and guests and what to be talking about from the conversations and interactions that I have with advisors. So that's invaluable. So don't hesitate, reach out. Uh, I love interacting and, and learn a ton from it. Brilliant. And we'll wrap it there. Thank you so much. Right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.